Welcome to the About, From, and With podcast, a podcast showcasing speech-language pathologists' journeys to finding their passion and purpose in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Danica Pfeiffer. In each episode, we'll learn about, from, and with SLP clinicians and researchers as they share their experiences, advice, and expertise. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in for the final episode of season one of About, From, and With. Today, I'm happy to share a conversation I had with Dr. Danielle Moss about her journey pursuing her master's and PhD in the United States as an international student. She shares some great tips for others that are on the PhD path along the way. Dr. Danielle Moss is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Kansas. Danielle received her Ph.D. in Communication Sciences and Disorders at James Madison University. Her research interests include child language development and disorders in Caribbean, English-speaking, and culturally and linguistically diverse children. Danielle also has research interests in caregiver-infant interaction and infant-directed speech across cultures. Previously, Danielle completed her Bachelor of Science in Health Sciences and Master of Science in Speech-Language Pathology at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Danielle holds certification from the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and is registered with the Health Professions Council in the Bahamas. All right, let's jump into the conversation. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Danica. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's jump right in, and can you tell us a little bit about you growing up before you started your SLP journey? Sure. So I am born and raised in the Bahamas. I'm from the island of New Providence, and um, I was actually homeschooled my entire life. So I've, uh, the first time I entered a real classroom, a true classroom, was in college. In terms of how I became a speech-language pathologist, I was always interested in medicine and thought I wanted to be a doctor, but I really can't do blood. (laughs) (laughs) And it was something that I thought I would grow out of. Truly, I thought I would grow out of it. But when I was about 16, I kind of figured, you know, this probably won't be for me. So I kind of searched for medical adjacent fields and kind of fell into the realm of health professions. Back when I was looking into college, so that's, you know, 2008, 2009, the major careers were, you know, doctors, lawyers, nurses, accountants, that kind of thing. And so when I fell um, onto speech language pathology, my parents were like, what what is that? And my dad literally said no. <laughs> literally said no. It wasn't until his friend from one of his best friends from college, their eldest daughter, they were on a cruise and they were visiting the Bahamas and she was studying speech language pathology. So I guess it was legitimate then. Um, and he <laughs> someone re- else was doing it. <laughs> literally, he refutes this story. He 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 says this did not happen, but it did. <laughs> my mother is a witness. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, he became interested in it and then he started doing his research. And then he realized that, you know, there are not a lot of speech language pathologists in the Bahamas. This would be so great for the country in terms of its growth. I had a few relatives with speech and language impairments. And so I thought, oh, you know, this could work. Um, But I also thought that audiology was interesting. So I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to 
go either route, but I found a pro a five years master's program at Duquesne University, which is where I ended up enrolling. And so I just chose speech pathology and I and I stuck through it. That's really interesting that you did a five year program. How was that structured? Did you get to start clinical a little bit earlier or how how was that set up? Yeah, so it is set up into two parts. We have a pre-professional phase and then a professional phase. And so the pre-professional phase was the first three years, and then the professional phase is the last two years. And so you actually start grad school your senior year of college. So the first three years, they kind of cram everything in there. Yeah. <laughs> and then your, your last two, your senior year. I mean, we had a graduation. We had a graduation. Um, and then we started grad school, like, let's say graduation was Saturday. We started grad school Monday. And then, okay. it, yeah. And then um, <laughs> it's six, six consecutive semesters. Were you thinking at this point that you would go back to the Bahamas and practice when you finished? Or were you thinking you were going to stay in the U.S.? Definitely always goal back home. Staying in the United States was like not even a thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not not even a thought. And just because, you know, it's so different. It's different for everybody. Um, but I definitely just love the lifestyle of the islands. And then my entire family is pretty much on one island. And of course, that's where I was born and raised. So that's where my heart was. But then also... As you become just more aware of the field and what intervention can do for people, I just had this heavy burden to go back home and give back. Just knowing the the needs, the wait lists that are, I mean, around the world, right? Um, right. There's a need for speech language pathologists globally, but um, I was definitely just keenly aware of the need for it and special education as well, generally in the Bahamas. And I minored in special education. The goal was definitely always to go back home pretty much right away. Okay. I might have entertained a thought or two to stay, to complete what we call an optional practical training, OPT, which is for uh, traditional F1 international students. And I'm sure depending on the type of visa that you might have, the training options differ. But with the F1 visa, you're allowed to stay in the United States for 12 months just for some extra training if you want to work. Yeah, you know, I might have thought of, you know, maybe I'll do my, we call it, you know, just an OPT for short, OPT, but wanted to go back home as soon as possible. If there was a break, Danielle was home. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine going to school somewhere that was so far away from home and not being able to see your family. I'm sure that had its challenges. Yeah, it it definitely it definitely did. You know, being an international student is so unique because you made this choice, right? Nobody put you Nobody sent you away to study abroad. And so you want to be there. You're grateful for the opportunity. Um, but at the same time, it's not like you can just go visit your family, you know. And I was so privileged in that I, in terms of where I lived, I didn't live as far as, you know, my other international friends. You know, they would go years without going home. It does differ depending on where you're from, but it definitely was hard that I couldn't just go home. And I think in my program, I think I went 10 months without going home. Okay. Um, the last stretch, and that that was hard. Were there any other international students that were in your cohort that you could kind of talk about your experiences with, or were you the only one? I was the only international student in my cohort, but thankfully, 
it wasn't that intentional <laughs> when I started out, you know, um, during my university career to be really plugged in, but I joined the international student organization right away. Um, we started a Caribbean student organization during my time there. And okay. so I was surrounded by individuals with similar experiences. I, I was involved with a lot of organizations on campus. So I had a really, 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 really great friends. And, you know, we all were able, and, and I had a, a good core few of international friends as well. I had family there in Pittsburgh, yes, um, <laughs> but not necessarily sharing the experience of an international student in the speech language pathology program. I mean, it, it had its positives and it had some downsides. And then of course, people kind of figure things out as you go along. So for example, another u- unique trait about me, and I don't think this is necessarily unique for clinicians, but I just had a lot of interest. And to be, I felt like every time I took a class, I was like obsessed with it. <laughs> so in this case, I took a speech science class and I absolutely loved this class. And I think the professor kind of sensed that. And so after the course, he you know, invited me to kind of just talk about it and offered me uh, like a research position, which was so cool. But then I found out that it was tied to like work study or anyways, I just wasn't eligible for it. Okay. Yeah. And that kind of was (laughs) kind of like the snowball of just like knowing what you can do, but just having limitations of your status. But it, it was good for me to realize that early on, though. Um, it definitely helped, for example, not comparing, like, for example, CVs. So if I were a resident, I don't I didn't think I necessarily had to be a citizen, but if I were a resident, I would have qualified for that job probably, and that would have been on my CV, but I couldn't. So I ended up, you know, I was a resident assistant. I worked for catering. I, you know, I was a cashier. I had different kinds of jobs that I qualified for. And, you know, it looks different on a CV, but I knew that if I were eligible, I would have had those experiences. However, I would say that one of the beautiful things about about many individuals in our field is that once you create those connections with professors and I guess they see something in you, they definitely look for things for you. And so that was discouraging initially, but you know, the moment that opportunities came up in the department that I qualified for, like another research assistant position, um, two of them, when they came out, I was, you know, identified to apply for them and was successful. And so I did end up having those experiences eventually. Oh, that's great that you had that support and that they were looking out for you. What made you become interested in research? Was it that initial offer that you received to be involved or was there something else that made you really interested in research? I would say I've always had questions and I liked finding the answers. So I've always I've always liked some aspect of research. In terms of completing it by myself, that initial offer of, hey, you could, this could be a position and you can be paid to do this. And I'm like, wait, what, really? (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) Definitely piqued my interest. Um, But I would say that, you know, just being in class and talking about research studies and people creating things and, and, Asking questions and finding answers was just interesting to me. I've never considered myself a creative person. And, you know, when you think about creatives, think about art and creating content and and that kind of thing. But 
I realized that I like to create things like programs, like planning things and the thought of creating interventions or, you know, designing a research study sounded super interesting to me. And I'm not quite sure when the PhD conversation came up, but it definitely was on my radar, I would say, since I was a junior, because also in the program, you had an option to do a thesis. Okay. And so, you know, that was a conversation. If you wanted to do the thesis option, that would be a good option for you if you were thinking about doing a PhD. And so I guess I kind of figured I would always do a PhD. It was just kind of when. I had great mentors and professors there that really nurtured and encouraged that. My, I want to say my last year in the program, I was a research assistant for Dr. Megan Overby who does, um, she does research in childhood apraxia of speech. And I had the opportunity with her to travel to Michigan to collect data and also analyze um, a lot of her samples. And that was definitely what made me realize, okay, this this is what I want to do. <laughs> this is, I mean, and I, I love being a clinician, but in terms of combining the two, because mm-hmm. her work was clinical, that made me realize that this is exactly what I wanted to do. And um, so I had, you know, different different professors kind of talk to me like, when are you thinking about applying? Are you going to go <laughs> straight through? Are you going to take a break? And of course, I had those tell me, you know, just don't take a break. Don't, it's going to be so hard when you start. Just keep on going. Just keep on going. And then I had some that said, you know, you want to get some experience as a clinician first, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, grad school was a lot. And so the thought of applying for an, another program to begin right away, just it just didn't align with, align with my life goals at that time. <laughs> totally um, understand. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I said, you know, I'll do my CFY and um, – I'll think about this PhD thing later. And it's so funny that you know, whenever I would see these professors again or just, you know, for some reason had a contact with them, they would say, yeah, when are you thinking about doing your PhD? <laughs> so I couldn't I couldn't run. I couldn't run away from it, even if I wanted to. And you actually returned to the Bahamas to do some clinical work. Is that right? Yes. So after graduation, so I completed the five years master's program at Duquesne University. I moved to the Bahamas. During this time, I was kind of job hunting. I didn't necessarily know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, So I decided to take the occupation of stay-at-home child. (laughs) I was very (laughs) serious about my role. (laughs) I was going back home to just rest. I was so tired. I needed a break from grad school and it it sounded great. But Yeah, good for you. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, but also I had no idea what the field was like in the Bahamas. I knew there was a need, but I didn't really know what my options were. So in the Bahamas, we kind of have three realms. You can work at rehab in the hospital. You can work at our in our educational system, which is called the Ministry of Education, or you can do private practice. But in terms of my knowledge base of the field of speech-language pathology, I only knew about the educational system. And it's a government system, and it's not that easy to be hired with it. I I turned in an application actually. And to this day, I haven't heard back from it. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yes. Well, I wouldn't say that didn't necessarily work out. So I let's say I, I moved home on probably a Saturday. 
probably a Saturday. On a Sunday, I had a chance conversation with somebody. On a Monday, I had a job interview for someone in a private practice and I was hired on the spot. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It, hap- it happened super fast. So I had put in the application um, to work um, in the educational system. But like I said, I hadn't heard back, but it's not that I was necessarily waiting for it. But I had a job offer and there was someone connected there who was able to be my clinical supervisor for my CFY. Oh, perfect. And yeah, it just, it seemed perfect. Uh, the private practice, it was a pediatric outpatient clinic. However, I kind of saw everyone, mostly mostly peds, early intervention, children with autism, just because of the need of speech language pathologists in the country, I ended up seeing, um, you know, dysphagia patients and stroke patients and things like that as they came up. And I did quite a bit of pro bono work there as well. Um, My employer was super, super awesome with that, with helping individuals. The other thing is the promise is very small. And so just opportunities kind of come up. And so I was able to do kind of some pro bono work for some um, family friends. And then also, so and that's where the dysphagia and the um, TBI and things like that came up. And then mostly working with um, early intervention and little ones. And I was there for uh, two and a half, maybe almost three years. And in terms of my experience there, you know, it was great. So it was an outpatient clinic. And so we had an occupational therapist there. um, And then there was also an ABA clinic there. And so there was a sense of community in terms of working with children. In terms of speech language pathologists, though, my community was pretty much just my cohort, just because I didn't know many speech language pathologists in the country. My first year was very difficult. It was extremely difficult um, for a number of reasons, not having a community there, but also just translating everything you learn to a new culture. And though for me, I was born and raised in the Bahamas, I was trained in the U.S. And so you would think that those two would naturally come together. Not necessarily. (laughs) Yeah, that does sound really challenging. Yeah, not necessarily. And so, for example, like, you know, the early intervention model in the U.S. is for pretty much to train and coach parents to equip them to um, provide those interventions for their children throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's easy by any means, but the the culture is that, you know, you're the professional. I, there's no way I could do what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even want to try it, really. And I mean, as with experience, that definitely has gotten better. So for me, I'm able to identify the cultural difference right away and saying, like, I know that I'm seen as the expert, but you're actually the expert in your child. And I'm here to equip you with those tools that you can help your child in, you know, their everyday routines and things like that. But I didn't have that knowledge or language <laughs> when I right first away. started out. Yeah. No, I did. <laughs> and I didn't have any I didn't have anyone to necessarily tell me that. So that was challenging. And another challenge was just like the resources, Um, you know, in grad school, I would go to Target, you know, the dollar spot at Target, a beautiful place, (laughs) love it. And, you know, and create fun things and just had so much fun with my therapy in the Bahamas, in the Caribbean, we import a lot of things. And so it's just not the same in terms of access. And then Mm -hmm. in terms of pricing, there's also differences there. So that was 
super hard. However, though, it made me so resourceful and it was extremely formative for me as a clinician in terms of my therapy and being thoughtful about it. And that's why I had so many questions. And that's why I ended up looking into a PhD because I I had genuine questions. So as I mentioned before with the early intervention, another thing I experienced was my first week there was I was um, assessing a child who spoke exclusively Bahamian Creole English, which is a language variation spoken widely throughout the Bahamas. The the official language is English in the Bahamas, but, you know, due to globalization and the Atlantic slave trade, we have a language variation, um, a combination of West African languages and then, you know, English. So we have a Creole there. um, And it's the first language of many Bahamians, not everybody, but many of them. And so you can, you can get by going between two or mixing both, but I had a kiddo and he, he just spoke BCE. And I just remember I, I, I was administering a test. I can't remember which one exactly. And he just wasn't it just it just wasn't working out so i just had to use bce with him exclusively and you know we got through the eval i felt really confident i'm like okay i got this and then it was time to look at his language and i'm like i'm seeing things that i was told is specific language impairment in school and you know we get some training with cultural linguistic diversity and but not necess- not I wasn't equipped in the way that I felt that I could apply it right away to my home country. Mm. And so that was my first clinical question. It's just like, what does this look like? And I remember coming home. And this is how I knew when I had to do my PhD. I came home and I was talking <laughs> to my dad and I was like floored about it. And he just was like... <laughs> He's like, he was like, this is like a great, this is a good question. But he just wasn't like, I mean, I was burdened by this question. I'm like, <laughs> how can I answer this question? Like all of these kids, like, what am I going to do? And he just was, you know, and I said, okay, I, I have to figure out how to an- answer this question. And so that was definitely the driving force, um, informative for, you know, pretty much my next steps. But that happened my first, the first week of my job. And so I kind of wow. expressed already that I was tired. <laughs> I had planned <laughs> rest. I didn't rest. I I got a job, started pretty much right away. And then I I had like all of these questions and I just felt so burdened and I'm not quite sure. Sometimes I wonder why I feel so burdened. You you know, I, I feel like we all have a purpose as speech language pathologists, but sometimes I felt like I was trying to carry not necessarily the Bahamas on my shoulders, but a lot of people. And I do think it's because, you know, I saw the field I was interested, but one of the reasons I chose it was because it was so needed in the country. And I think that that's why, you know, I felt so, I don't, I don't necessarily want to use the word burden anymore, but I felt so passionate about it. Yeah. Like this was your calling, you know, you saw this gap and you knew that you could help fill it. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Or hope to fill it anyway, or attempt to fill it. <laughs> yeah, trying to do. start the conversation at least. Yes. It sounds like, yeah, that must have been really challenging after, you know, you spent so much time learning how to apply all these things in the U.S. But then, yeah, I can't even imagine trying to take that into another country right away. Right, exactly. And then also trying to figure out my own clinical style. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, it was, it was a lot. Um, and so, I had many questions and I would write them down, but I wasn't quite ready to apply. When did you start thinking about that and and like determining when was going to be a good time for you to go back to school? I reached out to mentors. So another issue was I didn't necessarily want to leave 
I didn't want to move. So I was like, okay, I there there has to be a way for me to do this online, right? I'm like, they do PhDs uh. online. I can do this online. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I reached out to mentors and I'm like, okay, I think I want to look about, I would say probably a year after I finished my CFY and I got my C's, I, I reached out to mentors and, and initiated that conversation. And I would say also... The time, the timing escapes me, but I had a few weddings. So I traveled back to Pittsburgh. And whenever I go to Pittsburgh, I go to the department to say hi to faculty. <laughs> and so I had conversations, you know, with the two years of graduating. But I, the first question was, do I want to do an SLPD or a PhD? And based on just the questions that I had, I was encouraged to pursue a PhD, which meant that the online option was not an option for me. <laughs> right, yes. right. You have to do a PhD in person. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that thought, that same thought that you did. Like, I can only really make this work if it's online. And unfortunately, you can't do a PhD online. Yeah. No, no, and I and I mean, there there's some blended programs. I was like, man, can I find a blended one where you know I I go to campus every couple of months, maybe? Right. <laughs> I just didn't. I didn't want to move. I I just didn't want to, but th- that wasn't an option at the time, and I have no idea what it's like now. Um, but and I don't I don't think that's changed, right? I think there are some programs. As far as I know, yeah, as far as I know you you still have to do a PhD in person, but there are some great blended programs for SLPDs out there that you can just do some residency type experiences and do a por- you know, your classes mainly online. Right. Yeah, that's what I've seen as well. And then um so once I understood that I <laughs> I had to I had to move and I accepted that. I wasn't quite sure exactly what I wanted to pursue and I mentioned before that I had a lot of interests, a ton. I was like maybe and I don't think everybody knows this, but I was like aphasia, childhood apraxia of speech. I love speech sound disorders, but my first week with that child and assessment that that just kept on coming back to me but I wasn't quite sure quite ready to accept that because I knew that not a lot of research had been done of that because I had looked and I I think I failed to mention that earlier so I had looked to see you know okay has there any research been done with Bahamian children who speak BCE and I couldn't find anything I you know checked in with colleagues couldn't find anything there has been research done on adult BCE speakers but we know that that's different in children um, and so I just, just a thought, just the thought of having to, to start something with not a lot of knowledge and, and, you know, like PhD is daunting, but choosing a topic that, you know, there's <laughs> nothing on. I was like, there's no way. I reached out to a couple programs and James Madison was one of them. And what I loved about JMU was that the faculty, the research areas were so diverse that I felt that I could, whatever I end up choosing, that I would be supported in that setting. So you didn't need to have a clear, I know a lot of people wonder about this, if they have to have a clear topic defined that they are going to study for their dissertation when you enter your PhD program. But you're saying this is not necessarily the case. You don't have to have it clearly defined and you're not tied to that one idea for your dissertation. Yeah, I think it differs for the PhD program. I know there's some PhD programs where you have to identify a mentor before you get there and you kind of go to that university for that mentor. And so you would 
you know, would have had to define the area at least a little bit. And there's some PhD programs where you don't necessarily have to, you can join and you can kind of choose your mentor as a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, at JMU, I wouldn't say you, you have to have a, a good idea of what you want to do. You don't have to necessarily come out the gate saying this is exact my exact topic. Um, but I knew that I was between er either early intervention or child language research. And so through my interview process, I had identified a few people who I could work with depending on the topic that I chose. Okay. And it's different for everyone. To be honest, if I had to choose a mentor and a topic before I, I went to the PhD, I'm not sure when I would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is really daunting. It definitely is. Yeah. And just someone like me, I just have so many interests. The thought of, you know, kind of being tied and you can never change your topic again. I, I, commitment issues over here. I would be like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, the program at JMU really spoke to me. Did you have any special considerations that you had to factor into your choice of programs because you were an international student? I mean, the biggest factor, which I mentioned before, was I didn't want to go anywhere. But once I decided that I had to go and I had to leave home, I didn't have a criteria. I looked at different programs in terms of there were European options, there were Canadian options, there were options in the U.S. Um, I ended up choosing the U.S. just because I completed my master's there. And it seemed like the next step in terms of just, you know, my educational style. At least I wouldn't have to kind of have a learning curve with just like the educational system. I was familiar with that. Um, but once I had decided that I would move home, I moved from home and pursue a PhD, I would have gone anywhere that I felt comfortable with. And so some people go to universities for the mentor and I went to the US for the school. I wanted a program where I felt that I would be supported. Um, <laughs> and I felt that through the entire application process, just the whole thing, just... I, I had a really good feeling about it. And how long did that process take from when you started looking into programs to when you actually finally started your program? I started looking at programs, I would say, August 2016. Okay. And I probably applied to James Madison University January 2017 maybe before that maybe I don't think it was December though <laughs> and I'm, I'm like trying to flash back and I remember the holidays and being bogged down by this whole thing and Danica I failed to mention that I had to take the GRE that was another thing oh, because I didn't hadn't taken it yet. yes I yeah. hadn't taken it so that was another thing oh. um, yeah <laughs> studying for the GRE like two years after grad school during oh. having a full-time job was, was not the move for me. That was, that was something else. Oh, all the geometry. I'm just like thinking about that test. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, but anyways, yeah. So I, I, I want to say I took the GRE probably November, 2016 and then started my applications. Yeah. So I don't think okay. I applied in December. I think I started them in January. And to be honest, I don't remember when I interviewed for JMU, but I think I found out around March, 2017. So it didn't take too long in terms of applying and being accepted. I applied to another university that I did not end up pursuing. And another important factor for me was funding. Right. Um, at the program of choice, PhD students are offered full funding with a 
graduate assistantship. And so that kind of, that took away, you know, the financial burden of figuring out how you would pay for this program and live. My my biggest thing was, you know, would I be allowed to be me in this program? And it, mm-hmm. of course, that's hard to parse out virtually. I didn't Definitely. I didn't do a campus visit, but I, I felt that. And then um, the financial support was there and I knew how I would pay for it. Do you have any advice for international students that are looking at programs in the U.S. and trying to get that feel for if this program real, will really allow them to be themselves and if they will be supported? How did you kind of parse that out? Yeah, I would recommend to kind of make your your list, your things that you need to have, things that, that are important to you. And once you've identified programs that fit that criteria, talk to students because they will tell you. And you can also get a sense of, and even if they don't necessarily tell you verbally, you can just get a sense. I I think we'll talk about this a little bit, Danica, but during the interview process, I had the opportunity to speak to some students. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, I was able to say, okay, this might not be the place for me based on just the energy and the responses and things like that. I would recommend, it's not something that I did at JMU. I think that I was just so focused on you know, I was completely in GRE. I was trying to make this timeline work. I found a school that would let me kind of choose my research options. And I, I was more concerned about those kinds of things. Like, can I can I choose later? Right. I didn't necessarily think of, okay, you know, what what are, what are people saying about this program? I didn't speak to anybody there. So, I mean, ridiculously blessed that it worked out the way it did. And I can speak about how amazing the program at JMU is for days. Um, (laughs) But I know that that's not the case for many people. And so I would definitely speak to students, speak to international students as well, even if they're not necessarily in the program that you're looking for, there's an international office and there are people that are available to speak to you. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Mm -hmm. Definitely. For people that are not familiar with PhD programs, can you give just a brief overview of the different parts and the different stages that you have to go through during this PhD journey? Sure. Speaking with other individuals who have completed PhDs, sometimes it does differ depending on the program. So you definitely want to find out what it is specifically for your program. But generally speaking, um, once you've been admitted to the program, you go through pre-requirements where you complete your courses. And you do this in preparation for your qualifying exams. And this is basically an exam that says that you're ready to begin to continue to complete the requirements of a PhD. (laughs) Yes, you have to show that you have some credibility. Yes, (laughs) you have to show that you're ready to begin. Basically, once you start, you're preparing for your qualifying exam. So you're taking courses and then you are engaging in independent studies and really nurturing and honing what you're area is and what your research is going to be. Um, Then you have your qualifying exams. And then once you pass your qualifying exams, then you can begin your dissertation process. And with the dissertation process, you have a prospectus where you propose your 
um, research idea. And then once you've passed your prospectus, then you complete your research study and then you complete your dissertation, which is your research study, and then you defend your dissertation and then you're all done. I'm curious, was there anything that was surprising to you about this whole PhD journey process and all of these steps that you had to go through? The most surprising thing I would say is that it just looks so different for everyone in a program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You enter a space and you talk to students and you try to get an idea of what you're up against. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be your experience. Returning to the U.S. after being home and after growing and having a level of independence and, you know, just just working, you know, that that lifestyle is different. It was a morning process for me when I started my Ph.D., And I didn't realize that that would happen. You know, I kind of just thought like, okay, business as usual. I've done this U.S. thing. I've done grad school. It's going to be fine. But it was a morning process and it was culture shock because Mm. every place is different. But yeah, I I had a morning process for my former life. I had to adjust to being a student again and reading articles. And although I was excited for the time to do that as a clinician when you're busy you're like oh I just wish I had time to read a research article back then and now we have we have different things these days (laughs) to help (laughs) us with those things um staying up with the research but yeah back then I just wanted time to to read a research article so I was so grateful that you know technically I was being paid to complete my PhD right but I didn't give myself that grace or space to kind of just mourn my former life and just adjust to being a student again. And so that made my first semester very hard. It was very, very, very hard for me on my first semester. And so I would say that, you know, when you go through orientation too as well, and you have those expos with like resources and like the counseling center to kind of, even if you think you don't need it, you know, just just keep tabs on things because you, you never really know what happens emotionally, mentally when you're going through such a big transition. Yeah, I think that's really great advice, especially when you're coming from, even if it's just a different state, you know, Mm -hmm. another part of the country, but I can see how that's really relevant for people that are coming from a different country altogether. And when you're going back to school, like you said, you are, you are moving on to a different time in your life where you're not doing what you used to do anymore. And so giving yourself grace, like you said, to really process all of that, I think is important because it is a stressful time. You're signing up for something that you will really challenge you and will have really tough moments. And if you can have a support system, even if it's in a different country or in a different state and you can just stay connected with those people, I think that's really helpful too. Yes, for sure. Okay, so you finished up your PhD during the pandemic. And how did you start thinking about what was going to be your next step? That is such a great question, Um, and I'm trying to think of the most linear way to explain it. (laughs) So again, did not did did not want to come, (laughs) did not want to move for my PhD. So when I came, did not want to stay at all. Okay, but I would I would probably say maybe after I finished my first pilot study, I experienced a lot of barriers getting my research approved in the Bahamas. 
for good reason in terms of there were just concerns about the safety of participants for what I was proposing to do. And so that was just very taxing. And so I was confronted by the question of mm, what limitations would I have in terms of my research career would I have if I went home right away? And that was something that I had to interact for a little while. I probably didn't decide that I would just see the job market and just see what's out there until probably February 2020. And then of course the pandemic happened. And so that that changed everything. Everything that I thought about the job market <laughs> in general, the yes. pandemic changed it. Um, yes. <laughs> Danica and I can relate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but anyways, but I, I put feelers out everywhere. I um, sent my CV to the local um, university to see if there were any opportunities there to work at the University of the Bahamas. And of course, COVID, there was a hiring freeze like immediately um, mm -hmm. in March of 2020. And so I kind of just had to focus if I wanted to pursue academia research that I would just, I would have to go elsewhere because there just aren't any opportunities for that outside of that university at that time. Like, things are always changing. I'm sure now that there there might be something right now <laughs> that I don't know about. And so, yeah, I began the interview process. Now, what exactly did I want to do? I mentioned earlier that my experience um, as a research assistant in my master's program really made me tick. And so I knew that a postdoc was something that I wanted to do. However, depending on the funding source, depending on just rules, regulations, it might be difficult for international students to secure a postdoctoral position. Okay. And so you need a you need a position that will sponsor a visa pretty much if you want to work outside of that OPT that I mentioned. So mm -hmm. I have a year guaranteed that I'm able to work anywhere without any sponsorship, a visa sponsorship. And it's basically an institution will apply on your behalf and say that, you know, we'll, we'll pay these fees and this person is going to work for us and we're going to make sure that they're following the rules and regulations of the country that they're working in. Um, so that's what visa sponsorship is. I had no idea. I had an idea that it would have been difficult because it, it is difficult just in general for any any immigrant, any anywhere, even, you know, immigrants that are working in the Bahamas, it's a difficult process to get a visa, to get hired and things like that. So I didn't think it would be easy by any means, but the the pandemic definitely put a number on top of that. And so I wasn't sure if I would be able to complete a postdoc. I had a couple of interviews for postdoctoral positions and one of the issues for one of the postdocs that I applied for was my graduation date. They would have wanted me to start before I graduated. And I didn't think I could handle that. For any um, internationals looking anywhere you go, you want to see if there is sponsorship, if, if you're eligible. And even if it doesn't say, reach out and email and find out. I say this because I had gone through an entire interview process with a university. And generally speaking, universities, they're classified as what you call exempt for visa sponsorship, as in they can apply and they will generally get approved just because uh, in terms of like a need that universities have to fill positions with individuals with um, research degrees is usually met. But I interviewed with a university and they didn't sponsor visas. Oh my gosh. And I, and I mean, I was, I, I was in the meeting with HR and I just said, you know, I have this OPT thing, so I'm good for a year. But like after that, I'm going to need visa sponsorship. And they were like, oh, we don't do that. <laughs> 
And that was that was after a, a whole day of interviews. And then I had to do my research talk after that, which anyways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's so much work and so much preparation to get to that point and then find that out. Oh my gosh. Exactly. Oh. And so I would say to international students, you'll get a lot of um, mixed advice in terms of when you disclose that you're going to need visa sponsorship. But I will say that throughout the pandemic, I've seen a change with the application process in that they ask you on applications if you will okay. need visa sponsorship in the future. So that definitely helped in that going forward if it was not on the application and honestly Danica if it was on the application I asked anyways because I was like I don't have time to do that again right um, I, I just can't because that that's the alternative even if you think like oh if they find out then they probably won't want to to interview me that's not necessarily true but you don't want to get to a point where they don't sponsor visas and then it's an issue yeah that's really good for others to know and to be aware of Yes. So, and it's truly nuanced. You know, um, it took my it took that interview for me to realize, OK, this is something that I'm going to do. So for my current position here, I emailed <laughs> I emailed my potential employer and I was just like, am I eligible? And she was like, I think so. But I'll 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 double check. And I, I, mean, <laughs> I was so great. I was so grateful because I, I just I didn't feel like I could proceed if I didn't have that secure knowledge that I would be OK. So between visa sponsorship, trying to figure out if I wanted to do just research, if that opportunity was even available or a faculty job, I kind of just hopped between those three spaces. And now you've landed in a postdoc. I landed in a postdoc and, you know, different opportunities and doors closing kind of helped me realize what I truly wanted, which was a postdoctoral position. And you hear people say, what's meant to be will will happen. And if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And, you know, all of those like feel good phrases, but it's true. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I'm it's, so glad that you found a good fit. Yeah, it, it is so true. That's awesome. So as we are closing up here, I just have a few rapid fire questions for you to end our time together. Okay. The first one is, what is one resource that you couldn't live without? My mentor? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that answer. Oh, yeah. Dr. Geraldine Timler. Oh, my goodness. She <laughs> is – I can go on about her forever, but I identified her as my mentor December 2017, and I would say that my journey – looked so much different after her. I mentioned that my first semester was super hard. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily saw that it was hard for me, but she is a brilliant scientist, but also one of the most caring people that I know. Could not could not do anything without her. Best resource <laughs> to me currently yes. still. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would second that. I was so happy to have her on my committee as well. And I still email her. I just emailed her yesterday about things that I have questions about. And she's always so willing to chat and give her advice. It's amazing. She's the best. I know. What has been a defining moment in your SLP journey as you think back over all these things we just talked about? Can I say, can I, oh, you said one. My first year was pretty defining for me and I'm going to cheat and put two, but <laughs> my first, my first one was, was pretty defining for me because I realized that 
my journey was just different from my peers, just being, you know, in a developing country with limited resources, with limited SLPs. That was defining for me because, you know, we, we tend to compare a whole lot. And I just learned that that's something that I cannot do. I can, you know, like you can't compare yourself to someone because everyone has different shoes. So that right. was, that was definitely defining. Another defining moment for me was that I don't think I mentioned necessarily, but I saw a lot of clients who were expats. So from different parts of the world living in the Bahamas. And there were just like a lot of demands that some of these people had. Oh my. And so I realized that truly there's nothing that you can do to make people happy. Like nothing. <laughs> and you know, you hear that. You hear it. But I mean, I would be at people's homes at like 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Not wow. in my job description. Yeah. And um, still unhappy. So. <laughs> wow. All right. What is one thing on your professional bucket list? Oh, <laughs> Um, well, right now I have not done an intervention study. Okay. So that is on my, that's on my bucket list. So right now at my postdoc, we are developing an intervention right now from scratch and it's incorporating implementation science, which I'm equally passionate about. Well, that'll be really exciting for you to get that experience in your postdoc then. Yeah. What is your favorite part about being an SLP? meeting families and providing them with tools and resources that they need. I absolutely love providing children with a voice, whatever that means. If it's via sign, via a device, via verbal speech and communicating, but truly you'll find that, you know, you're, you might not necessarily do that for a child. You might have prepared them for that because people move, people leave and that kind of thing. So that's not necessarily what all you get to do. But what I love is just meeting families and providing them with the resources to help their children throughout their lives. Absolutely. I think that makes it all worth it. All the hours that we put into this and all the schooling that really makes it worth it. For sure. Where can people connect with you or learn more about the work that you're doing? I created an Instagram handle. I want to say it was probably like my last year of my PhD and I wanted to document. I wanted to document the process, like the dissertation process and all of that. But then the pandemic. So that definitely didn't happen. So I have a handle that has nothing on it. I have a personal one. But then I recently made a professional one that is, I think it's danielmoss.slp. Okay. Um, it has nothing on it, and I'm hoping to add some things in there. Yeah, um, so stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, so hopefully I'll be um, encouraged. <laughs> That's where you can you can find me, danielmoss.slb. That sounds perfect. All right, I will put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today and sharing your SLP journey. I think this will be really helpful for people to hear. Yes, and Danica, thank you. And I must say, it is so great to see you. You know, we cross paths during our PhD programs, but just seeing you leave the program and really thrive and find your space and what you're doing with this podcast and your social media platform is just amazing. And I'm so proud of you and I'm so excited to see what you will continue to do. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet. I'm excited to see how your postdoc journey goes, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Thank you. Best of luck to you. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this final episode of season one. I encourage you to follow the podcast so you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out in season two. And please consider leaving a review of the podcast. It helps others find the podcast to listen to it. You can find the show notes and transcripts at aboutfromandwith.com and connect with me on Instagram at danicapeiffer.slp. Until next time, stay humble and kind.